Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16 is where we're going to be tonight. Uh, if you've been with us over the past several weeks, uh, we've been going through the, the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to eventually make it through the uh, book of 2 Samuel as well. Um, but last week we kind of took a quick break. Uh, but we are back, uh, back into 1 Samuel, so we're going to be in chapter 16. So if you have spent any significant amount of time in church, uh, especially as young people, if you spend any significant amount of time in church, you probably heard people talk about this idea that, that God wants to accomplish His will through you, right? That, that God wants to do incredible things with your life, and that through doing incredible things through your life, God's going to, uh, God's going to accomplish His wants for His world through His people, Especially as young people, you've probably heard it said that this idea that, man, God wants to use you specifically, right? That God wants to use you specifically to do amazing things for the kingdom of God, and, 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 and God wants to take you and, 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 man, just like see, he wants to use you to accomplish wonderful things for his honor and for his glory. And, I want, and one thing I want you to know is right off the, right off the bat is that I would agree with that. I would agree with that statement. I would agree with the idea that you, that God wants to take you, you, every single person in this room, and do incredible things through your life. But when I say that, there's a few different responses that people may have. Maybe you kind of fall into one group, or when you hear me say that, you think, okay, that's nice, uh, that, that's nice, Pastor Mike, but like, that may be true for other people, but not necessarily for me. You know, or, or maybe you're kind of like the same, but you, you're like, okay, like, yeah, I believe that's true. I just don't think he will. You kind of feel that you kind of find yourself, you're wrapped up in, in, in this, this doubt. All you can focus on is your deficiencies. All you can focus on is all the reasons why God would not use you. You're not this or you're not that. Or you think about your past. You think, well, I did this. I did that. Like, how would God use me? You look, you know, you think of all the reasons why you're no good. You're kind of like Moses, Right? You're kind of like Moses. When Moses, when God tells Moses that he was going to use him to, to free, his people, free his people from slavery in Egypt, and Moses is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's like, who am I? I can't go. I don't talk right. I don't, all these different things, right? You kind of fall into like that Moses camp. Or maybe there's some of you, when you hear me say that God wants to do incredible things with your life, you hear that and you believe it. You hear that, and you're like, man, that, I, I believe that. And, and you start to look at your life, and you look at the ways that God has gifted you, and you think, man, I want to take all of these things and these things that God's gifted me with and how I can use those giftings that I have and, and use them as opportunities to do amazing things with my life and do these things for God's glory. So there's these kind of these two camps, right? There's these people who, who doubt it because all they can see is their shortcomings, and there's these people who believe it because they see how God has gifted them. No matter what camp you fall into, I would, like to, I would like to present a question to you. And I don't want you to answer out loud. I just want you to think about it. What makes someone useful for the kingdom of God? What makes somebody useful for the kingdom of God? Is it an amazing testimony? Is it an incredible amount of skills? Is it having a lot of influence? Is it having a lot of, a, a lot of power and prestige? Is it the ability to memorize scripture really, really well? Or is it the ability to teach and to, and to be able to explain things in a way that everyone can understand? Is it status? You know, so many people I know, they hear an incredible testimony and they think, man, I wish I had a testimony like that. 
I wish I had a testimony like that. And, and man, wh- what, imagine what God could do if I had that kind of testimony. What makes someone useful? Is it having a solid Christian upbringing? You see, when it comes to believing that God can do great things in your life, I believe that every person in this room, including me on this stage, struggles with the same problem. And this is the problem. The things that we value in ourselves and in others are not the things that God values in his people. I'll say it again. The things that we value in ourselves and in others are not the things that God values in his people. The things that we think make us useful are not the things that God says make us useful. See, the reason that you struggle to believe God can do amazing things in you and through you is because you see value differently than God does. Or perhaps you're overly confident in what you can do in your own strength, and because of that, you actually see that nothing happens through you. Because everything you do is in your efforts and based on your abilities. See, tonight we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, and the entire theme of what we're going to read in 1 Samuel chapter 16 tonight, the entire theme can be summed up in verse 7, where God says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's the entire point of what we're going to be talking about tonight. I have just stolen my thunder. Some of you are like, thanks, Pastor Mike. I can just leave now, right? I've gotten the main point. I'm good. I can leave. Or I can just write that down and I can just fall asleep for the next 30 minutes or so. I don't want to steal my thunder, but I want you to understand this, guys, that if your heart is not right with God, nothing else about you matters. You with me? If your heart is not right with God, nothing else about you matters. To give you a little bit of context... Saul has been rejected as king. So if you haven't been with us, uh, Saul was the king of Israel, and he had repeatedly disobeyed God. He had repeatedly rejected Samuel's instructions. And, and what happens is that ultimately he is rejected as the king. This is the last thing, not last week, but the week before, the last thing we talked about was we saw this rejection. We saw God say that I am taking the kingdom away from you, and I am going to give it to another We see that Saul has been rejected. So the natural question is this, is who is God going to give the kingdom to? If he's going to take the kingdom from from Saul and give it to someone else, who is that someone else? Well, that question is answered in chapter 16. So here's what I'm going to have us do. I want you, if you would, just stand as we read, uh, stand in in honor of the word of God. In uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to read starting in verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king amongst his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for him, or you shall anoint, anoint for me him whom I decree to declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. 
Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the outward appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. You can go ahead and grab a seat. If you would pray with me, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that you've given us to be able to study your word tonight. God, I pray that as we look at this passage, that, Father, we would not leave this place thinking uh, too uh, highly of ourselves or thinking highly of others or thinking highly of anyone other than you. But, Father, we would also not leave this place disqualifying ourselves from ministry because of what we feel like we lack. God, help us to be able to value the way you value. Help us to take pleasure in the things that you take pleasure in. And Father, I pray that as your word is taught, that Father, you would accomplish your will through your people, through your word. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Now, there's a lot we can get into into this passage. This is a, uh, a pretty popular passage if you, uh, if you are into your Old Testament. Um, there's a lot we can get into. And throughout the passage, throughout tonight, I'm going to kind of point out some things to you that I want, uh, I want to point out a couple things to you that are going to be the answer to this question. The question is this. What makes someone useful in the hands of God? Right? What makes someone useful in the hands of God? The first thing that we're going to see in this passage is this. Is we're going to see three things. The first thing is this. Is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Now, just to do a little bit of groundwork, right? When I say the word sovereignty, I want to make sure that we all know what I'm talking about, right? The word sovereignty, or when I say that God is sovereign, what do I mean? Ultimately, it's, it means that sovereignty is the supreme power or authority. That's what sovereignty means. When I say that God is sovereign, I'm saying that we're saying that he has full power, he has full authority over all things, and he is in control of all things, that's what we mean when we say that God is sovereign, or we say God's sovereignty. So when I say the first thing we're going to see tonight is God's sovereignty, we need to see how that plays out. See, the chapter opens with Samuel, and he's still stewing over what happened in chapter 15. He's still frustrated. He's still grieving over the fact that Saul has disobeyed God in such an incredible way. And now he's been rejected as king, and, and Samuel is sitting here just in the, in the shambles of what has just happened. Right? The people of Israel demanded that, they, that God give them a king. God gives them a king. He judges them by giving them what they want. And in doing so, what happens is that it leads to the natural thing that you would think would happen, is that it falls apart. Now Samuel feels like he is left with all the pieces. Surely Samuel is concerned for the people of Israel, right? 
He's concerned. What, what does the future look like? He's been charged with an, with an incredible responsibility to be a leader for the people of Israel in such a difficult time. And it seems like no matter what Samuel does, no matter how much he obeys God, it seems like nothing works out. It seems like no matter how much he obeys the Lord, everything seems to just be falling apart around him. And then God comes to Samuel, and he says this in verse 1, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. Now that idea of horn with oil is whenever they would anoint someone or anoint a king, they would have a horn that was filled with oil and they would pour the oil as a way to anoint him. So that's what that means. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king amongst his sons. Notice how God comes to Samuel, right? God comes to Samuel. Samuel is is grieving. And in this, this state of, of grieving and mourning, what, how would you expect God to approach him? All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout Scripture, we see God come to his people and comfort them in their affliction. We see, I think of Elijah when he's on the run from Jezebel. And God comforts Elijah. I think of, uh, I think of also instances where Samuel went, right? When the people of God, uh, when the people of Israel come to Samuel and say, give us a king. And, and God comforts Samuel and says, they are not rejected you, but they have rejected me. But here, God does not come to Samuel in comfort. He's not come to Samuel seeking to comfort him, comfort him in his distress. He comes to Samuel strongly. And he, asks, he comes to him asking this, how long will you grieve over the past? How long are you going to hold on to what has already happened? Man, this is something that many of us need to hear. God's plan was always to anoint a king of his choosing. That was always God's plan. We see this in Deuteronomy when God gives specific laws for the kings of Israel, knowing that there is no king yet. Ultimately, God's ultimate goal, God's plan was always for Israel to have a king. It was going to be a king of his choosing, not of the people's choosing. But Samuel couldn't see that. All he could see was the failures that were right before his eyes. But he couldn't grasp the fact that over all of it, over all the mess, over all of the mistakes, over all of the failures, God had not relinquished his control. While it seems like everything is in chaos, God is still sovereign. God is still in control. You see, Samuel's inability to let go of the past failures, not even his failures, but the the past failures of others, momentarily kept him from being able to pursue what God wanted for the future. And the same is true for every person in this room, that there are times when we are handcuffed to the past. We allow ourselves to be handcuffed to the past, and that keeps us from being able to move forward. God comes to Samuel and says, how long will you grieve over the past? And I have the same question to you. How long will you grieve over the past? Now, it's important for us to understand that there is a time to mourn. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 4 says that there is a time for everything under the sun and he goes on and he says there is a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance there is a time to mourn there's a time to grieve we should never be unfeeling I want to be very clear we should never be unfeeling when it comes to the brokenness of the world around us right when we see the 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 atrocities that are happening in Gaza and those things that should break our heart we should grieve over that 
when we look at the atrocities of what happened in the United States, we should grieve over that. When you think of the things that maybe have happened in your own personal life, and there's people in this room that have stories that many people probably can't even imagine, we shouldn't be unfeeling. It's okay to grieve in those instances. However, there is also a time to get up and move forward. There's a time to get up and move forward. And I want to be very clear. Samuel's problem wasn't that he grieved for Saul or Israel. His problem was that he temporarily allowed his grieving to keep him from moving forward. That was the problem. See, Samuel is distressed over Israel, understandably so. He's grieving over Saul. And surely there's doubts and questions in his mind. Surely there's questions that he has. Did God, does, does God still have a good future for Israel? What does this, what, what does this mean for me? What, what am I supposed to God, how could you possibly t- make good out of this mess? See, doubting God's sovereignty, no matter how small that doubting might be, questioning God's sovereignty will always force you to grieve longer than you should. Questioning whether God is really in control of this will always cause you to grieve longer than you should. It will always cause you to sit when you should move. See, so many people allow what has happened in their past hold them prisoner from ever moving forward. And I want you to know that I want better for you than that. I want better for you than that. Don't allow what has happened in your past or in the past of people that you love to keep you prisoner from ever moving forward. See, we live in a culture of victim mentality. Victim mentality. I'm a victim to my circumstances. I'm a victim to this. I'm a victim to that. And and we allow the circumstances of the moment to determine our responses to everything. If you want to be used by God, if you, you, if you want to be used by God, you have to be able to trust him. Even in the uncertainty, even in the fact of, God, why would you allow this to happen? Even in those moments, it's, we have to remember that we have to trust that he's in control. And in those moments, we should grieve. We should grieve, but we should also remember, you know what? God is in control. Whatever God does, there is a good reason for it. You have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit tells you it's time to move forward, you're ready to get up and let go of the past and move forward. The second thing we see is that uh, he says, I have provided for myself a king. God says, get up. I've provided for myself a king of my choosing. God tells Samuel that he has provided for himself a new king. Now, this is very interesting, right? Because Saul was the king that the people wanted. But God is about to establish the king that he wants. What's so ironic to me, what's so ironic about this is that no matter how badly Israel wanted to be in control of their own destiny, no matter how badly Israel wanted to be self-governed, even the kings they had, God put in place. No matter how badly they wanted to be free of God's rule and lordship of their lives, there's nothing they could do to escape it. Even the kings they put in place were accountable to the God they were trying to escape. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that ultimately that this king that God has provided is King David. Will go down as probably the greatest king in Israel's history. But here's the thing. David could not become king 
as long as Saul was still in place. So while God had rejected Saul as king, Saul was still the king until something happened to Saul. So David, Samuel can't just go anointing kings because it's going to be a problem for him. And this is why Samuel responds with, well, this, he goes, how can I go? If Saul hears of this, he will kill me. Naturally, if you're Samuel, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're putting me in a bad spot. How can I do this? God then gives Samuel specific instructions on what to do. He tells him to take a cow with him, go and invite Jesse and his sons to participate in the sacrifice. And ultimately what that means is that Samuel would offer the sacrifice, and then the meat that was used in the sacrifice, they would then have a meal, and they would eat together. So it's not like they were coming together, and it's like, all right, Jesse, now you take the knife. You know, that's not really what was going on. Because ultimately, it was a meal. And then what we see is that God says, then I'll tell you what to do from there. So Samuel moves forward. And if you think about it, it's really interesting, right? Because he really doesn't know a whole lot of details here. Samuel says, okay, Samuel knows that God told him, all right, go to Bethlehem, find Jesse, and one of Jesse's sons is going to be the king, and then I'll tell you what to do from there. Right? He, knows, he knows some basics, but he doesn't know which son. He doesn't know which son it's going to be. He doesn't know how this son is going to become king while there's still a king in place. There's so much that is uncertain about this plan. There's so much about this plan that if you're Samuel, doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. But what I want you to see what Samuel does. What does it say Samuel does? It says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. See, in the face of uncertainty, what does Samuel do? He obeys. He obeys God. Samuel doesn't wait to have all of the answers. He moves forward. Because here's something that you can take to the bank. When God tells us something, we can trust he has the answers to our questions, even if he doesn't give us those answers. Does this make sense? Just because I may not know the answers does not mean that there are not answers. And God is not intimidated by your questions. But why is it then, why is it that God would give Samuel just enough information to get started, but not all the information to follow through? What you'll find is that actually God does this a lot of times, where God doesn't give all of the answers at the forefront. Why is this? It's because of this. Because one of the number one signs of being useful in the hands of God is this, total dependence on God. Total dependence on God. How easy would it have been if God told Samuel all of the details for Samuel to just go and do it without depending on God for any of it? See, the reason so many of us struggle to move forward with, in the midst of uncertainty is because we want to be in control and we don't want to have to depend on God. We don't want to have to depend on God. But here's a good note for you to take. Whoever depends on God the most will be the most useful to him. See, we, we, we measure usefulness in so many different ways. But I want you to know that the person who depends on God the most is the one that is the most useful to him. 
So perhaps the thing that is holding you back is not a lack of skills. It's not a lack of experience. It's a lack of depending on God. That's what holds you back. And I would tell you, that's what holds most people back. God gives Samuel enough information to get started. And now the question is this. Will Samuel trust God even with his unanswered questions? And I ask you the same question. I'm sure many of you have unanswered questions. When it comes to following God, there's a lot of questions you have, and you don't have the answers to it. But here's the thing I'll ask you, is will you trust him even while those questions are unanswered? Samuel is quite literally risking his life and basing it on the fact that God is not going to start something and then not see it through. And notice the difference, right? Because Samuel understands that God is in control. Notice the difference. When you doubt that God is in control, you are paralyzed and ineffective. But when you trust that God is in control, you move forward no matter what. And sometimes what I've found to be true in my own life is that God will strip me of all reasons to be confident in myself in order to force me to be confident only in him. you'll find that God does some of his best work when you don't have all the answers. So we see God's sovereignty. The second thing we're going to see is our short-sightedness. God's sovereignty, our short-sightedness. Now Jesse and his seven sons are before Samuel. And Samuel starts to go down the line. He starts to go down the line, starting in verse 6. It says, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on the appearance of or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man sees on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Immediately, Samuel begins to do what all of us would tend to do in this situation, Right? God tells Samuel, you're going to find Jesse and one of his sons, you're going to anoint as king. I'll tell you who it is. And Samuel immediately begins to, based on his own opinions, determine who he thinks would be the right one. Using his own opinions, he starts to look at all the sons of Jesse and be like, no, yeah, this is the guy right here. Surely, God, this is the one, right? I mean, look at him. And what's he doing? What's interesting is that he's using the same criteria that made Saul king. And what's going to happen? They end up with another Saul. Right? Based on nothing but their appearance and what he can see externally. And God reminds Samuel that, he, that God looks on the heart of an individual and not on the appearance as man does. And now in light of this truth, you and I, this forces us to do a couple things with our lives. When you understand that God does not care about your external appearance or your external performance or your external abilities or talents, he cares about your heart. This forces us to do a couple things. It forces us to do, one, change how we view ourselves. It forces us to change how we view ourselves. I believe that everything that you do in life is an investment. Everything that you do in life is an investment. You brush your teeth because you're investing in the health of your teeth. And you're investing in friendships because no one wants a friend that doesn't brush their teeth. So let's do something. Let's do something really quick. Let's take... Let's take your week, okay? 
take your week. I want you to break it down like a pie chart. Break your, take your week and break it down by like, a, by like a pie chart. What percentage of your time is spent investing in outward appearance? Now, I don't, necess- I don't simply mean looks, right? Brushing your hair and putting on makeup or having nice clothes. No, I'm not talking about your looks. I mean, that's part of it. I mean, how much of your time is spent investing on things that people see? What percentage of your week? 30%, 50%? Those are generous. More likely 75%, 80%, 90%. On the things that people see. You know, there's a comedian that says this, uh, that, that he, it was a joke, obviously, but, he, he, but I thought it was actually pretty insightful. He says, men drive nice cars. Not because men like nice cars. They know women like nice cars, so men like nice cars. And while obviously that's a joke, there's some truth to this. There's a lot of things that we do because of the appearance of other people. How much of your time is spent on investing in things that the world and the people around you value so that you can be seen a certain way in their eyes? How much of your time is spent on working on your social media presence? There's a lot of people, and I know people, who will post something on Instagram, and if it doesn't get a certain amount of likes within a certain amount of time, they will delete it. I'm sorry if this is you. I know this is probably a lot of you. Understand something. I love you with all my heart. That is unhealthy. How much of our time do we waste because of other people's opinions, external, outward things? Now, I want you to take that percentage, whatever it may be, and compare it to the percentage of time that is spent investing on your heart, investing on the things that people don't see, your character, your walk with the Lord. You see, when you understand what God values, it should drastically impact those percentages. Perhaps you've heard, you've heard of something called like the five love languages. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this. So this is something that's popular with, uh, with married couples and with people who are dating. Uh, but essentially, there's, the, there's five love languages, right? So there's physical touch, there's uh, words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, gift giving, and stuff like that. And ultimately, these, each of these love languages is basically saying that, like, hey, someone has a love language. That means that is, what they, that is how they want to be loved, right? And because that's how they want to be loved, that's also how they express love. So let's take, let's take Kayla and I, for example, right? For those of you who don't know, Kayla is my wife. Kayla's love language is quality time. My love language is words of affirmation. So if, if there's times where, man, things are just kind of crazy and hectic or whatever, and me and Kayla have been go, 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 nonstop, nonstop, and I want to make sure that I'm taking time to show my wife that I love her, you know what's really going to make a difference? You know how I should show my wife that I love her? Not simply by words of affirmation, which is what I'm naturally going to do, right? Because that's my love language. What I need to do is what? Quality time. Why? Because that's what she values. You see, I don't allow what I value to determine how I love my wife. I allow what she values to determine how I love my wife. And the same is true in our walk with God. You cannot take, hey guys, stop talking, please. You cannot take what you value 
and think God will be pleased with it because you value it? Does he value it? That's the question. Does God value what you're presenting? Does God value what you're investing in? And when, if we truly love God, like we say we do, if we truly love God, it should be reflected in what we value ourselves. Just think of the Pharisees. When Jesus speaks to them, Matthew 23, 25 to 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and selfish indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. I would tell you that this is probably, being generous, 80% of Christians. Whitewashed tombs. We care about what people see but not what God actually cares about. Now, this doesn't mean that external things don't matter, right? This doesn't mean that you shouldn't invest in the things that people see. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't care what you look like. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't seek to develop skills, right? I go to seminary. I'm taking classes in seminary. Why is that? It's not for the opinion of other people so that I can grow skill sets to be able to better teach and to better understand and different things like that, right? So it's not bad to invest in the things that people should see. You should invest in those external things. However, you can have all of those things and it not matter if your heart isn't right. All of those things, none of them matter if your heart is not right. So it should change how we view ourselves. It should also change how we view others. Samuel is jumping to some super quick assumptions, right? He sees these young men. Even though he doesn't know them at all, he's jumping to conclusions about them. And I'll tell you this, that if there's one thing that drives me absolutely crazy, it is this. When we make assumptions on people without ever taking time to get to know them. Many in this room are guilty of this. And you know who you are. I think all of us to some extent are guilty of this. I'll have people that I know and I love that will speak to me and they will say that there are certain people that they cannot stand. There are exact words. I can't stand that person. I don't like this person. It's because of this thing or because of that thing. And you find that they've never taken the time to actually even talk to them. Never you taking the time to talk to them. And I'm not talking about a, hey, how are you? I'm not talking about a, hey, how you doing? I'm talking about taking a legit time to sit and speak with them. Get to know them. Get to know them. Think about this. You think of Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus in the, Old, in the New Testament, right? Jesus sees Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down from coming to your house today and all this stuff. What did Jesus not know about Zacchaeus? Nothing, right? Jesus knew everything about Zacchaeus, and he still went and ate with him. You know nothing about your neighbor, and you won't even talk to him. You see the imbalance? See the problem? We form opinions without ever getting to know people. Now, this doesn't mean that every person you, get to, you take the time to get to know doesn't mean that you're going to be besties. 
right? There are people that I've taken the time to get to know, and I'm like, all right, like, we just, we just don't click, you know? That's fine. Right? It's just, hey, sometimes it just doesn't happen. But so it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that we need to be very careful how we judge and form opinions on other people. Here's the thing. God tells Samuel to not look at the appearance and ascribe value. But here's the problem, right? Samuel can't see their hearts. Samuel can't see their hearts. So what does this force Samuel to do? This forces Samuel to look to God and allow God to form his opinion on these young men. Because Samuel can't see their hearts, he must look to God who does see their heart and allow God to shape his opinion on how he views these young men. And how I want you to ask yourself this. How much would your interactions with people change if you allowed God to determine the way you viewed people? How much would your interactions with people change if you allowed God to determine the way you viewed others? Now we, we see that ultimately David will be chosen because of his heart. Right? Scripture says multiple, multiple times that God was a man after God's own heart. But we need to see that the heart of David was ultimately shaped by God. See, that apart from God, all of us have a wicked and desperately sick heart. Romans 3, Jeremiah 17, and the list goes on. So really, the only thing that made David of any use to God was what God had brought about in David. Right? The only thing that made David of any use was actually what God had done in David. Meaning this, don't ever despise the work that God is doing in your heart in the season that you find yourself in. You see, the way that God shapes your heart, he sanctifies you, is through the different seasons of life that you walk through. Meaning this, if you're in the midst of a season right now that you do not enjoy, which we all go through, if you're in the midst of a season that you do not enjoy, don't hate that season because it's bringing about something in you that is making you useful in the hands of God. making you useful in the hands of God. The season that you are now in may be painful, but it is this season that is producing the heart that is useful in God's hands. So we see the first thing, God's sovereignty. The second thing, our short-sightedness. And the third thing, David's significance. Verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was, a ruddy, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So Samuel goes through all of the sons that were present. Now I want you to put yourself in Samuel's shoes, right? Samuel. Yeah. All right, you're going to go to Bethlehem. You're going to find Jesse. Apparently, I don't know. Like, I guess there's only one Jesse in Bethlehem. I don't know, right? You're going to find Jesse and Jesse's seven sons. And, and, uh, or Jesse's, he doesn't even say seven sons. He goes, one of Jesse's sons is going to be the one who you will anoint as king. And Samuel's like, all right. So Samuel goes, and the sons are before him. And he goes through this one. Nope. 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 All right, God. Six. Nope. 
All right, well, clearly it's the seventh one. Nope. Okay, what's going on, right? And I, what I find is interesting is, is notice uh, Samuel's probably confused. Okay, God, like, what are you doing? Is this a joke? Is this a joke? And he immediately asks Jesse, do you have any more sons? And, and I want you to see, like, let's think about this, right? God tells Samuel that the king that he's going to anoint is one of these sons, and after going through all of them and God saying no to all of them, Samuel doesn't assume that God is wrong. He doesn't assume that God is lying. He assumes Jesse has more sons. You see that? Is that it was easier for Samuel to assume that there was another son than it was for him to assume that God was wrong. It was easier for Samuel to say, clearly there's another son here because God wouldn't lie. God wouldn't be wrong. See, Samuel trusted God so much that he knew that there must be another son. Despite what his eyes were seeing, his trust in God's word led him to believe that there must be another son that isn't there. And man, I'll tell you what, I want to trust God like that. I want to trust God like that. That whenever the world around me shows something contrary to what I know God has said, I want to say there's got to be a deeper reality here because God wouldn't lie. God wouldn't lie. We see that there's ultimately there's one son left. And the son is David. Now, where is David? According to the story, where's David? He's taking care of the sheep, right? David's taking care of the sheep. This was the lowly job. Being a shepherd was not fun. Sheep are stupid. They are. They are very stupid animals. They have no natural defenses. They can't defend themselves. They get lost easily. All a sheep knows how to do is eat, and then when attacked, die. Without a shepherd to look after the sheep, all the sheep are dead. And, and David is given this task. As the youngest, he's got to take care of the sheep. Now, this is not a fun job. You could tell who a shepherd was at that time based off the way they dressed and the way they smelled. Today, if you go to Israel, you can actually, going through the Judean wilderness, you can actually see shepherds leading their sheep still. So David is there. Now, Now, here's the thing that we have to understand. David most likely knew where his brothers were going. He knew that his father and his brothers were going to be with Samuel. Now, David knew that his fathers and them had left, but he didn't know why they had left. He just knew that they were going to be with Samuel. They knew they were going to this sacrifice. And, and he knew that he had a responsibility to stay with the sheep. Now, I want you to imagine that you're David. Your brothers and your father have all gone off to do their thing, and you're stuck at home watching the sheep. And I want you to know that there are many people, if you have not experienced this now, you will experience this at some point in your life, especially when you get into college. There are going to be moments in your life when it feels like everyone else is off doing their thing, and you're stuck at home watching the sheep. And it is not fun. You feel stuck at home watching the sheep. And I want you to know that many of you in this room, you may feel like that's where you're at, right? You feel like you're just stuck at home watching sheep. And I want you to know that you are not stuck at home watching the sheep, that while you may be at home watching the sheep, you're exactly where God wants you to be. God has placed you where he has placed you for a reason. We grow frustrated, right, as we see God take everyone else and do with everyone else what, he wish, what we wish he would do with us. 
God, why won't you do that with me? However, God's plan for David was different than his plan for the rest of his family. I've used this example before, right? Like, I, there's times where I'm at a red light. And I am, like, and like I'm, I'm in a red light. I'm about to turn left. And I don't know if this happens to anyone else, of you, anyone else that drives or whatever, but then the, the people on your right who are going straight, their light turns green and yours does not, right? And they start to roll forward. And naturally, I'm like, oh, green light, right? And I look up, oh, it's still red. And I get frustrated because I feel like turning left takes forever, right? And I get frustrated that I'm not moving. But here's the thing. They're not going where I'm going. If I value getting to my destination, I will value how long this red light takes. Some of us want motion just for the sake of motion, but that's not God how work. That's not how God works. Right? Everything that God does is intentional. He just feels stuck at home watching the sheep. However, this God has a different plan for David. The lessons that David had learned while watching the sheep we're going to see next week are what prepared him for being the man that God called him to be. You don't have David fighting Goliath if you don't have David watching sheep. You don't have David leading the people of Israel as king if you don't have David leading sheep. David was faithful with the small things, and he did his job. He didn't need to seek after acclaim or anything else that God called him out from where he was. Psalm 78, 70 through 72 says this. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with skillful hand. Here is something that I want you to see, that if you want to be useful in the hands of God, be faithful where he has placed you now see David didn't know that God was going to make him king but let's assume that he did let's assume that God that David knew that God was going to make him king one day let's just kind of make that assumption surely David would see his brothers and his father going to meet with Samuel and be like yo this is my chance I got to go. I got to go be with them. And then when Jesse says, no, nah, you got to stay with the sheep, David's like, are you serious? How am I going to get this? How am I going to be what God wants me to be? And some of you, maybe you feel like this, right? You feel like God's placed this call on your heart or whatever it may be. And you're like, how am I possibly ever going to get there if I'm stuck here? But actually what you find is that David was faithful where he was planted and he was exactly where God wanted him to be. And then being faithful where he was, God was developing the king that he wanted. And then at the end of the story, we see ultimately that the Holy Spirit rushes upon David. And I want you to see that the Spirit of God coming upon David is the entirety of David's strength as a king. See, apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, there is nothing you can do for the kingdom of God. See, the real anointing happened when the Holy Spirit came upon David. The oil on his head was just a sign of the reality of what God was doing spiritually. And see, what we see in the story of David here is ultimately how God works. We see how he uses the weak things to shame the strong. 
David was not chosen because he looked the part. David was not chosen because he was big, strong, and tall. He was chosen because uh, he wasn't chosen because he had that kingly look about him. God prepared his heart to make him able to play the part. God, Jesse, J, David was chosen because God chose David and made and cha- made David the man he wanted him to be. And you see, God has prepared what God has prepared for you. He will prepare you for. I'll say that again. What God has prepared for you, he will prepare you for. Don't ever disqualify yourself from doing the work of God because of external things. And here's a perfect example of this. We talk about making disciples. I challenged our, the, our CYP College of Young Professionals group with this a few weeks ago, and I want to do the same thing to you. If I was to go through this room and ask, who are you discipling? I would be willing to put money. 90% of this room would say nobody. I would, be, I would put money on it. And I'm not talking, oh, I, I act like Jesus when I'm around my friends. No, I'm talking intentionally discipling. If, if, and let's, I'll be generous. Let's say 80% would say nobody. But what is the one thing that Christ commanded his people to do before he ascended to the Father? What? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all I could, to obey all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. The last thing we were called to do is what? Make disciples. What's the one thing that 80% of this room, I would be willing to bet, is not doing? Making disciples. And why is that? Many people would say, well, I don't, I'm not, I'm not mature enough to. I don't know my Bible well enough. Let me ask you a question. Do you have the Holy Spirit of God in you? Meaning this, are you saved? If you have a relationship with Jesus, you have everything you need to share him with others. Everything. But I don't know enough. St- no, stop looking at outward things. Inwardly, God is making you the person that he has called you to be. And if you have him within you, you have everything you need to make disciples. So here's the question. Why? Pastor Ethan has said this on Sunday mornings the past few weeks. God has given you everything that you need to be obedient to him. But perhaps you're in here and you are trusting in yourself, right? You're trusting in your ability. You're trusting in the things that you can provide. You're trusting in the fact that you have all the, the answers or you're like, I have this or I can do this. I want you or, or whatever. Or maybe you're even basing your standing with God based on how good of a person you are. Well, I'm in church. I pray. If I was to ask you right now, if you were to die in this moment, and stand before God, and God say, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would be your response? For many people who say, well, I, you know, I, I you know, I, I do my best. Or, I mean, I, I, I pray, you know. I was baptized at one point. You know, I, I did this, I, I did that. That's external things, man. Where's your heart? Are you trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation? Are you trusting in your performance? 
If you're in this room and you have not placed your faith in Jesus, if you've not asked him to forgive you of your sins and you've stopped trusting in yourself and started trusting in him, I want you to know that there is no more important thing that you could possibly do than that. Don't leave here tonight. And I say this all the time. I say this when I preach on Sunday mornings. I want to say this to you tonight. If you are not 100% sure where you stand with God, don't leave here tonight until you are. And if you do, like, I mean this with as much love as I can, like, that's on you. That opportunity is available to you. Don't waste it.